great to be back amongst you. I've been uh, just come back from holiday, two weeks down in deepest, darkest Devon. And uh, we had some good weather, actually. It was fantastic. And uh, I've got, I want to tell you, I've got loads of brownie points this morning. I've got, I've got loads of brownie points stocked up in the bank because whilst I was away, I didn't look at any emails or text messages. So I, I tell you, Annette is so proud of me. Um, the two things that helped are one that I'm with Virgin Media, and you can't get a Virgin signal virtually anywhere. <laughs> Well, that probably will do, won't it, actually? That will do. We can't get a virgin signal anywhere, and that's probably enough. Um, And there wasn't any internet access in the place where we were staying, so I'm um, absolutely quids in at the moment. Okay, we're going to be following up in the next in our series called The Restoration Man. Uh, We're looking at... Uh, encounters that people have with the resurrected Jesus and the difference it makes to lives. And this morning we're going to be looking at a passage from the uh, book of John, John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. And um, we're going to read a few verses together. They'll come up on the screen behind me. This is what it says. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Great passage. Many uh, years ago, uh, when Annette and I had just started dating, in fact, it was one of our first dates, I took her to the pictures. And uh, it was wintertime because um, uh, uh, that's when it was, actually, it was just wintertime. So um, so we uh, were going to the pictures, and as we were going uh, across the itchin, just before we crossed the itchin, the car broke down on the bridge. It was freezing cold, it was trying to snow, whatever that means, how, how do you try to snow, but it was, tried to, so it was nearly snow, not quite snowing, so it was freezing cold, we're stuck in the car, can't put the heater on, um, uh, and so I get out of the car, I say, it's okay, don't worry, I'll go and phone the AA. So I went off to find a phone box, because it was in the days when phones were, they were huge, they, you won't understand this, okay, so you just have to go with me, but they were, they were like bricks, and to have a mobile phone with you in the car would mean that Annette would have had to have sat in the back, and that wasn't <laughs> going to be any good. So uh, I go to the phone box, and I phone up the air, and I say, look, um, uh, stuck, car's broken down uh, on the east side of the Itchen Bridge. Can you uh, come pick us up? Yeah, they said we'll be about 40 minutes. So go back to the car. We're sitting there, um, cold. And after about um, 45 minutes, Annette's saying... They're taking their time, aren't they? And I'm going, yeah, I don't know, don't know where they are. She said, you did give them the right directions, didn't you? I mean, she's, we haven't, we're not married, and she's starting to doubt me already. She's starting to doubt me. 
You did give them the right direction, did you? And I'm going, yes, of course I did. And uh, she says, so after about an hour, she says, are you sure you told them? And I'm like, right, I'll go and ring them again. I'll, I'll go and ring them. So I went back, rang them, and uh, I said, look, um, I've been waiting. They said, well, we can't find you. And I said, well, uh, we've been here. We're here. I haven't seen a van go by. Um, he said, well, go, we'll go back. We'll, the guy will come back and look again. Um, so just go back to the car. Just make sure you're by, by the car. I just must have missed you. when." You, you so I went back, and I sort of very, very smugly sort of said, told you they did get the message they are right I said um, they, they're looking for us uh, I told them we're on the uh, east side of the Itchin Bridge she said Itchin Bridge Itchin Bridge we're on the Cobden Bridge Ooh, boy did I learn a lesson that day I'm still married we've actually actually married me after that she had every reason to doubt me because, as you know, as you clearly know, I'm entitled to be called an idiot after something like that. But, you know, all of us have doubts. Did I lock the door before I left this morning? I'm looking now to see who's going, or oh, did I? Does he really love me? Am I doing my job well? I want to say the passage we've just read is more than just a story. It's an encouragement of what can happen when damaged people encounter Jesus Christ, particularly those of you who are battling with doubts, unbelief, and skepticism to do with the Christian faith of the church. Back in the uh, late 80s, I was disillusioned with church disappointed with it. My personal faith was in tatters. And in, uh, in the, uh, well, it was in the 1980s, I went to Spring Harvest at Minehead. And I'd only gone for the, the youth group were going. Um, I was going with them. We were just going for some fun. I was actually, by then, I was in my early 20s. I was just finishing uh, 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 my postgraduate degree in town planning. I was starting to look for jobs. And we'd just gone, really, we'd just gone to play snooker and have some fun. And uh, we'd gone with a whole group of young people uh, that I knew. And uh, my best friend and, uh, was there with me. And during the week, I had to go for an interview in London. I had to, in fact, I had to go for two interviews. I had an interview uh, one day, and then the following day, I had an interview as well. And it was an overnight one. So I, I was away for two days. And I went up to London, went for an interview with a big firm of uh, planning, uh, retail planning consultants in London. Went for the interview, and the interview was an utter disaster. Utter disaster from start to finish. The, the guy had interviewed me solely because of my dissertation. He was really interested in talking about my dissertation, which was called The Retailing Revolution and the Shopping Habits of Married Working Women. I mean, a winner. A winner, I tell you. If you want a cure for insomnia, I tell you, that's the, that's the baby. 
And uh, so as he, sa- he says, uh, this is the reason I've interviewed you. He said, I wasn't going to, I don't normally interview Peter, someone like you who doesn't have any actually experience in the field, but I was so interested uh, in your dissertation. And the problem was, of course, that I actually hadn't started writing my dissertation. All it was was a title, which he found out within probably about seven minutes. And then he spent, he was very polite, he spent another, probably another 40 or so minutes telling me about his holiday in France where he'd been cycling. And then he gave me some money for the train fare and uh, that was the end of that and so I came back from both of these interviews and I went back to uh, Minehead, I was uh, pretty disappointed with that and when I got back I got, uh, got back to uh, the place we was, uh, the chalet we were staying in and I got back and, and suddenly I walk in and, and, and there are people there, they go, oh Steve it's been amazing, we have met God, he's, he's come and he's Wow, we are so excited. And the whole youth group, they were so full of it. My best friend has said, oh, Steve, it's the most amazing thing. He has dealt with me. Oh, wow, you're not going to believe. It's amazing. You need to come to these meetings. And, and I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Everything within me was, oh, no, I missed out. Why wasn't I there? Disappointed. Desperately wanting it for myself, but thinking, well, but he hasn't turned up for me. And so for the next hours, they're saying, come on, see, come to the meeting. Come on, we're going to go to the meeting tonight. You'll love it. We haven't been to any meetings. I'm watching. I'm starting to be a bit skeptical. Is this real? Is what's happened in these lives? I know what they're like. Are they really red hot for God within such a short period? And so reluctantly, I went, sat amongst them thinking, Really? God interested in someone like me who's made such a mess of his mess of his life, made so many mistakes. And then it was though Jesus came in the room and dealt with a doubt-ridden, messed up young man and changed his life forever. That's who you see standing in front of you this morning. Someone who had an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. He restored me. And as we unpack this story about Thomas this morning, God is going to speak to us. He's going to speak to all of us, but for some of you it's going to be especially significant. And the first thing I want you to see is this, that Thomas was a man just like us. Thomas was chosen to be one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And even though we say that he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, there isn't a lot that we know about him. There are only a couple of occasions when we learn anything about what he was like. Most of us know him as Doubting Thomas. Actually, I want to say to you this morning, that is hugely unfair. He struggled with doubts no more than any of the other disciples, and yet he is named Doubting Thomas, and most of us would have heard of someone called Doubting Thomas, even if you're not sure who he is. It's a phrase now. Oh, they're a Doubting Thomas. And it's a caricature. Have you ever been to somewhere like Paris, or you go to one of the, these markets, and people, are, are artists are, are, are doing portraits, and they do caricatures of people, and what they do is they take a feature, the, perhaps the main feature, and they make it hugely bigger than it actually is and caricature the person and it's all a bit of fun but 
In life, we're a little like that. We caricature people. We caricature them. We, there's something we, we say of someone, oh yeah, they're, 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 yeah, they're a good, good person. But you know what? They're, oh, they're, they're anxious. They're riddled with anxiety. Always anxious all the time. All, all the time. And we caricature them as if that is the defining feature of what they're like. That's how we talk about them. And that's how we have caricatured Thomas, that he was doubting Thomas. Well, I want to tell you, Thomas was no more of a doubter than any of us are. You see, he was known, Thomas was known by two names. That wasn't uncommon in the day. He had a, Thomas is, is, if you like, is his Aramaic name. Didymus, which we read in the passage, is his Greek name. But actually, both of them mean twin. In whatever language he was known as, he was the twin. That was his nickname. It wasn't, it wasn't doubting Thomas, it was twin. He was, known as, he was known as the twin. We don't know anything about his brother or his sister. But undoubtedly, they uh, would have looked... Uh, quite like him, would have acted like him, would have been like him. And, and interestingly enough, whilst we know nothing of, the tw- uh, of his twin, the uncomfortable truth is this, there are occasion- occasions when each one of us are closely related to Thomas because we doubt too. We may not know much about Thomas, but we do know some things. We know that he was courageous Thomas is mentioned in dispatches when Jesus is going to Bethany after Lazarus has has died. No one understands what Jesus is talking about. So he has to clearly say to them, Lazarus is dead. He says, let's go to him. The disciples know this means going back into Judea. Judea was a difficult place for them. The Jews were threatening to kill Jesus, were saying they were going to, uh, were going to kill him. And so they, the disciples knew it was a dangerous place to go. And Thomas says this in John chapter 11. He simply says, let us go so that we can die with Lazarus. I mean, he clearly had a measure of courage. Even though he runs away with the rest of the disciples when Jesus is finally arrested and he runs away with all of them, at least Thomas is, is one who has the courage to go outside locked doors. These disciples are all locked in a room. The door's locked from the inside and they won't go out. At least Thomas has the courage to go outside and he's, out. he's not there the first time Jesus appears. He has a measure of courage. Maybe he's not such a big doubter as we've given him credit for. He's also honest and loyal. You see, the second occasion that Thomas is mentioned in John chapter 14, Jesus is talking about going to his Father in heaven to prepare a place for them. He told them they knew the way to the place that he was going. Thomas just comes up and says it, calls it as it is. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas is... He's honest. He's not afraid to say what's on his mind. And, and in fact, in response to Thomas's, well, we don't know where you can, we actually don't know where you're going. He spoke for everyone else. And in response to it, Jesus, this great declaration, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus makes this great declaration, but it was a result of Thomas' honesty. 
Sometimes being honest is the best way. Sometimes being honest results in an encounter with Jesus, hearing Jesus speak into our situation. The other disciples weren't prepared to say anything, but Thomas was. He was clearly uh, an emotional character as well. He'd been grief-stricken by Jesus' death on the cross, like all the other disciples. And we're not told why Thomas wasn't in the room the first time Jesus appeared, but there's just a hint he was disappointed. Maybe he couldn't be bothered to be there. Maybe he just didn't want to be with the others. Perhaps he just wanted to be by himself. You know, I've watched lots of Christians, lots of followers of Jesus over the years, over the 25 years I've been in churches down here in the, the south. I've watched lots of people become disappointed and become disappointed with their, perhaps their faith, perhaps with the church. And I, what tends to happen is this, as people get disappointed, they start to distance themselves. Slowly, bit by bit, don't come every week, they're not there every week. Jesus turns up in the meeting and they're not there. That's what happened to Thomas. Gets disappointed. Hey, he's not there. We don't know why he's not there, but he misses an encounter with Jesus. I want to say to you, don't miss encounters with Jesus. The writer in the book of Hebrews says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. If we feel disappointed, this is the place to be amongst God's people. Thomas was emotional. He was, I think Thomas was rational. He wants to be convinced. From the little we know, he appears to be trying to understand what's going on before he makes up his mind. Do you know what? I quite like Thomas. There's something about him I quite like. Most of us would say he's a solid bloke, good bloke to have in the church. But Jesus' assessment is a little bit different. You see, Jesus says Thomas has been overcome by doubt. Doubt is, is a feeling of uncertainty, a, a lack of conviction. We all know what doubt is. You go to a house and you're delivering something. Maybe, I don't know if you've ever done this, had to deliver invites to something that's going on. Maybe something in the street or a church event and you want to invite people. And you want to put a leaflet through someone's door and there's a big sign outside that says, Beware the dog. And there's part of you that thinks, I bet they haven't got a dog. And there's part of you that thinks, ooh, uh, they probably have got a dog. And if I put my hand, and you know you get those, the, I, I've done this many times, and I'm, I, I think there's a sign, beware the dog. And there's, uh, the, the letterbox has got all the, the, the little, it's quite difficult to get stuff through, and you've got to push it through with your hand. You don't want to scrumple it up on the way through. And so what you're doing is, you, you're like, oh my word, if I put my hand in, the dog will be waiting. I used to have a dog. We used to have a dog. And the dog used to chew up anything that came through the door. And if I'd put my hand through our old door, pushing something through, the dog would have bitten it. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, maybe there is. What if? What if there is? What? And we live, and we, we suddenly get, find ourselves caught. Oh, what? Uh, um, uh. And then, then we try to find a way to do it without putting ourselves at risk. Even though we can't hear, there's a dog. Doubt prevents us from moving forward. 
Doubt causes us to be caught like a rabbit in headlights. And when the rest of the disciples excitedly tell Thomas that they've seen Jesus, he simply refuses to believe what they've said. I mean, the bizarre thing is he's got history with these people. They're close friends. They'd seen Jesus do some amazing miracles together. They'd even gone out for pray. They'd gone out together praying for people without Jesus being present. And they'd seen remarkable miracles happen in Jesus' name. Clearly, Thomas has a measure of faith. He has a measure of confidence in God. And yet, when Thomas hears all the other disciples have seen Jesus, doubt overcomes him. The big question is, is it wrong to doubt? Tim Keller says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. We all experience doubt. The Bible makes it clear, though, that there are different kinds of doubt. In Luke chapter 1, the beginning of Luke's gospel, we come across two people facing up to a miraculous pregnancy and both express doubt. Yet one of them, called Zechariah, is struck dumb by God as a result of his response. And the other, Mary, is commended by God. What on earth is going on? You see, with Zechariah, the angel Gabriel appears to him and tells him, your prayers have been answered. They've been heard. His wife Elizabeth is going to have a son and Zachariah's response is this. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. Fair question, you think? A few verses later, a young unmarried girl called Mary is told by the same angel she's going to have a son even though she's a virgin. And in response to it, she says this. How will this be since I'm still a virgin? I mean... At first, their responses seem really similar. Their doubts seem understandable. And yet, there is a vast difference between the two. Zechariah is full of unbelief. First of all, he's been praying for a son. Clearly, he's been praying for a son because the angel says, your prayers have been heard. So he's been praying for a son. Secondly, an angel appears to him. And speaks to him. That's pretty, pretty impressive. Thirdly, the angel says your prayers have been heard. Now, clearly, the prayers he's prayed in private have been heard. And this person is telling him his prayers have been heard. And fourthly, he's told God is going to do it and give his wife, cause his wife to become pregnant with a son. Wow. And yet... Zachariah's heart is filled with unbelief. How can it be? I'm an old man. Well, he'd been, that's what he'd been praying for. He knew his wife was old when he was praying those prayers. Mary's response is very different. Mary is a young, young girl. She's not even thinking of having a baby. She's not married yet. And understandably, she's overwhelmed by the moment. An angel appears to her and says, you're going to have a baby. Well, how can that be? I'm still, I'm still a virgin. And when the angel speaks to her and tells her about it, she says this, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. The point is this. 
It's okay to have questions. But when doubt is a front for unbelief and skepticism, we're in trouble. You see, doubt that results in unbelief essentially views God as being untrustworthy. You know, we battle with doubts over promises of protection, provision, reminders of what the, uh, the Bible reminds us of what God says about these things. And when we, someone comes to us and says, Steve, the, the Bible promises that God will never, you go, yeah, 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 I know that, I know that. We're very quick to go, yeah, 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 I know that. But deep down, underneath, we are doubting, and that doubt is leading to uncertainty and anxiety, and, um, and really, it's rooted in unbelief. We don't really believe that God is going to be with us. How much of what we do we pray for do we really believe will happen? You know, God doesn't promise to give us all that we want. But there are many things that he does promise us. And when we don't believe him, when we don't trust him, when we doubt him, when we slip into unbelief, we are calling God a liar. This is what it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. Unbelief is a faith eater. I don't know if you've, uh, it, when you've done any washing, so some of you here at this moment are now just going to switch off because you won't understand what I'm talking about. I barely understand, okay? But uh, when uh, you wash uh, uh, clothes and you're washing colors, you can put a piece of paper in that soaks up the color. It effectively eats the color. Any color that runs, it eats up, so it stops the color running. If, it do, if you don't put it in, the color will bleed over all your clothes. Doubt is a faith eater. Doubt sucks faith out of us. We want faith to be in everything we do, but doubt sucks it out, stops it, leaves us monochrome, does it, stops the color of the life of God being shown in our lives, faith being outworked in every area. Right from the very beginning, the devil's great trick is to get us to doubt God. Right in the Garden of Eden, he says, Steve, did God really say? Trying to sow doubt, trying to get us to doubt what God has said. You see, to avoid being overcome with unbelief. We need to understand what's going on in our hearts, but that's easier said than done. You see, unbelief hides behind our pride. Sadly, most of us have too high a view of ourselves and our own thinking. This is what it says in Psalm 36, verse 2. In his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his own sin. Let that sink in. In his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his own sin. When we have too high a view of ourselves, when we think too much of ourselves, we get caught in pride and we, miss, we, can, we can miss doubt seeping into our heart, turning into unbelief. You see, unbelief involves a decision. 
Thomas doesn't say, I can't believe or I'm struggling to believe. What he says is, I will not believe. In the Greek, it's a double negative. I positively will not believe is what he says. I'm not sure that Thomas thought his friends were deluded. I think he thought they'd seen a ghost. Thomas' issue was believing that Jesus had been physically resurrected and that they had seen the physical Jesus Christ. And that's why I think he wants to touch Jesus. Jesus has told his disciples many times he would die and then be raised to life. Not one of them believed him. All were filled with doubt, but Thomas refused to believe when the evidence was incontrovertible. You see, ultimately, unbelief is a trap. It starts with personal disappointment and frustration with our circumstances, with the church, with other Christians. And underneath, even though we don't realize it, there's actually a problem with God. In our disappointment and our pain, we struggle with the fact that God, who is all-powerful and able to do anything that he wants to do, has chosen not to intervene in our circumstances and our situation. We start to wonder whether he loves us as much as he says he does. When others are excited about answers to prayer, internally we struggle. Instead of being really pleased for them, And grateful for what God's doing in their lives, we start to feel a bit grumpy. We're actually unable, we become unable to say anything positive. And when we're like this, we become like Thomas. I want to say I think it's it's something particularly, I think it's open to us all, but I think particularly guys struggle with this. We can struggle with this. And like Thomas, we can be around the fringes of church life, but doubt follows us like a cloud. Anything positive or new is damned with silence or phrases like, oh, sure, God's in that. And when those things actually go well, it's met with silence or indifference. And eventually it become, can become what the writer of Hebrews calls a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. God doesn't want any of us to fall into that trap. He wants to encourage us today. He wants to speak to us. He wants us to be, if we're battling with skepticism and unbelief, he wants our cry to be like the man in Mark chapter 9, who when he meets Jesus, Jesus, he says this, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Help me with my doubts. Help me, Jesus. See, the answer is an encounter with Jesus Christ. That's what the answer to Thomas's problem. He needed an encounter with Jesus Christ. That is the moment where everything changed. Right across the world, in Muslim countries, right across the world, people are encountering Jesus Christ. Some people, many people are encountering Jesus Christ in dreams. He's appearing to them in dreams. I've been reading a book while I've been away called A Wind in the House of Islam by a guy called David Garrison. It's an excellent book talking about what God's doing in Muslim countries where actually people can't preach about Jesus publicly. And Jesus is appearing to many, many people in the middle of the night in dreams and speaking to them. 
And it's followed up often by an encounter with, they bump into someone who's a Christian who explains what's happening in the dream. And many Muslims are turning to Jesus Christ. An encounter with Jesus Christ changes everything. And Thomas desperately needs an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus keeps him waiting for eight days. But eventually, he comes and speaks to him personally. He demonstrates he's heard what Thomas has said, even though he wasn't there when Thomas said it, or so Thomas thought. Put your finger in my wounds. Put your hand in my side. Go on, Thomas. Why do you think he deals with Thomas so publicly when he deals with Peter, and Peter's been pretty unimpressive in the way he's responded to Jesus. He's denied Jesus publicly three times. Why does he deal with Thomas so publicly? Well, the problem with unbelief and skepticism is if they're not properly dealt with, they're contagious. And when unbelief, skepticism, when doubts like that start to spread around God's people, it can cause such damage. It becomes like a faith eater in other people's lives. And so Jesus deals with it publicly. And he says to him, stop doubting and believing. In fact, some commentators suggest that Jesus is actually much blunter. And he says something like this. uh, D.A. Carson says this. Don't be an unbeliever. Be a believer. Jesus challenges us this morning to stop doubting. Stop doubting. What are our doubts? Why are our doubts right and what God says untrustworthy? Why are we right and the majority of the church wrong? Why is that? Why can we put such confidence in our doubts? Tim Keller suggests that the way forward is to start doubting our doubts rather than doubting what God said. Start doubting your doubts. Why are your doubts right? In the way that Jesus deals with Thomas, we see the evidence of the grace of God. Bizarrely, Thomas got exactly what he asked for. And yet there's no evidence that Thomas actually went, oh, actually, I did, oh, oh that's okay. Then he put it. There's no evidence that he actually did it. Seeing Jesus, it seems seeing Jesus was enough for Thomas. You know, we too easily say ridiculous things like Thomas. I'll never, oh, I'll never do that. Oh, oh I'll never do that or I'll, won't believe that. Not going to do that. I don't know if you were watching, if, you, if you're a fo- football follower, Gary Lineker made a ludicrous statement of what he would do if Leicester won the premiership title. Well, they've won it. He's got to do it. Oh, well, goodness knows what he'll do. Ludicrous promise of what he'd do, that he'd, he'd sit in his underwear and do uh, match of the day. What a ridiculous, ridiculous thing to do. Sometimes we say ridiculous things. Thomas says, unless I put my finger in. I bet he regretted saying that. There are many things that I'm sure we've regretted saying when we've been struggling with doubt. I want to say to you this morning, Jesus, the Son of God, is here this morning and he's come with grace. And he wants, he wants to restore us. He wants to touch us. He wants us to encounter him. He's promised to be here by his Spirit. He wants to start dealing with deep-seated doubts if... That's what we have. Are we prepared to trust him? 
For Thomas, the issue was about the physical resurrection of Jesus. What's it for us? The virgin birth? The deity of Jesus? The resurrection? Maybe we're struggling to believe that God's good. Our circumstances are so grim. Where is God in this? Is God, can he really be good? I'm not sure I struggle. I'm doubting that. Maybe there's a challenge over suffering, healing. Maybe we're battling over gifts of the Spirit. Maybe we're battling with church. Maybe our issue is with church. Maybe your issue is with me. Some people have all sorts of doubts and battles. Jesus wants to set us free. But it does require a response on our part. You see, when Jesus encounters Thomas, it required a response. And Thomas' response is immediate, straight away. My Lord, my God. It's the first thing that comes out of his mouth. He doesn't say, oh, I'm so glad you turned up because I was really struggling. He immediately goes, oh, I've been found out. My Lord, my God. It's deeply personal. And as he worships, his doubts simply fall away. My Lord. He is restored. His doubts become irrelevant in the moment. His unbelief blows away like the morning mist in the wind. It's like a device being restored to its factory settings. In Hebrews 3, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging God's people and therefore us today to not give in to unbelief and turn away from the living God. And he gives us the only sure antidote that we heard Rob refer to this morning. This is what the writer says in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, therefore, church, you who share the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, the passage that Rob was referring to. Consider him. John and Marion have just gone away to celebrate their ruby wedding anniversary. 40 years they've gone away to Paris. And one of the things they've gone to do is they've gone to uh, they've gone to Givenchy, just outside Paris, because Marion loves Monet, loves Impressionist paintings. They've gone to sit in Monet's garden. And John told me, he said, actually, what are we are going to do? He said, we're just going to catch a bus out there, and we're going to spend, if the weather's good, we're going to spend five or six hours just sitting and looking. Sitting and looking. They love beautiful scenery. Marion loves Monet, loves his paintings. They're going to sit and just consider. God says to us this morning, we're to be those who consider Jesus. Take our time. Think on him. Think on what he has done for you, what he means to you, how precious he is. We're to be those who sit back and worship him. Listen to worship songs. Read the Gospels. Meditate on them. Meditate on him and what he's like. Pray, seek his face, read books about him, listen to preachers that elevate him. Spend time with people who love him. We're going to have an opportunity to respond by worshipping him in a moment. 
My Lord, Thomas says. But he also declares that Jesus is God. My God. You see, Jesus is more than just a good man. He is more than just a good teacher. He's more than a miracle worker. He's more than just a prophet. He's more than just a messenger. Jesus Christ is completely God. He is the outshining of God's radiance. Thomas's great statement is the culmination of John's, the great proclamations of the divinity of Jesus from John chapter 1. If he is God, if Jesus is God, then we owe him our lives. Everything we are, everything we have is his. Is he your God? Is he the God of your life? Does he own you? He can be today, but you need to keep your eyes fixed on him. There's a, as we come to a close, there's a, a great passage in Matthew chapter 14. And it's the story of the disciples. They're out on the lake. They're rowing across the lake. And it's rowing across at night. The storm kicks off. There's a storm that kicks off. The wind's blowing. The waves are crashing in over the boat. And they're struggling, rowing across the lake. And suddenly, Jesus appears walking on the lake alongside them. And they seem, they're terrified. They think it's a ghost. They think it's a ghost. And then they realize it's Jesus. The wind and the waves are still kicking off all around them. And Peter says, if it's you, let me come to you walking on the water. And Jesus says, yeah, okay. And Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking toward Jesus. And then he looks at the wind and the waves and he starts to sink. Now see, the issue is this. It was already windy. The waves were already incredibly high. When Peter made his decision to get out of the boat, it was already like that. It wasn't calm and suddenly the wind kicks off. It was already, he was getting out into something that was pretty uncertain. His problem was he just took his eyes off Jesus. Now, the Christian life, Jesus never promises us an easy life. He never promises that the Christian life is going to be easy. You'll never have any problems. And actually, in the midst of our problems, he calls us to come to him. And many of us have turned to Christ when things have been really difficult. And we get out of the boat in the difficulties and we find ourselves walking on the water with him. And, and, and somehow in the circumstances, everything seems okay. And yet there are moments where we suddenly, we take our eyes off him and we look at the circumstance and we start to sink. We start to doubt. We start to be filled with unbelief. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you feel caught like that. Maybe you've been walking with him but you've taken your eyes off him and you're starting to sink under the waves and the wind and the waves and Jesus says to you stop doubting believe put your eyes on me again fix your eyes on me we all have doubts and if we didn't have them we wouldn't be human but God doesn't want us to become ensnared in unbelief and skepticism about what he says. He doesn't want us to be those on the outside looking in. He doesn't want us to be those coming along to church occasionally, standing, sitting at the back, standing at the back, standing at the front, sitting at the front, raining on every parade. He doesn't want us to be like that. 
He wants us to be free. He wants to free us from doubt and unbelief and skepticism. He knows we've got lots of questions. He's not bothered about our questions. He knows the answers. And an encounter with him, the questions somehow seem irrelevant. A relationship with him resolves our need of questions. Suddenly the questions don't seem so important. I've got loads of questions. Loads of questions. But I tell you, an encounter with Jesus Christ changes everything. He is the restoration man. This is what John Owen said. John Owen was a Puritan many, many centuries ago. This is what he said. Let us, it's a bit archaic the language, but listen to this. Let us assure ourselves there is no better way for our our healing and our deliverance, yea, no other way but this alone, namely the obtaining of a fresh view of the glory of Christ by faith and a steady abiding therein. Written hundreds of years ago, but it's as true today as it was then. I'm going to ask the band to come out. We're going to respond to God this morning. Because there's something, you know, when God is here, Jesus is here by his spirit, it's appropriate to respond, to acknowledge, to worship him. That's what we're going to do. We're going to worship him. So let's stand together. Maybe you're, if you're battling with just doubts, you know that they've just been, you've been weighed down with doubts. Loads of questions. It's okay to have questions. God wants you, first of all, to know it's okay to have questions. But if you know that your doubt has started slipping into unbelief and skepticism, did God really say? And you know that these doubts, they've just become like a faith eater and slowly you're just starting to just unpick things. I don't know. I don't know about this. I don't know about this. I don't know all this stuff about church. I don't know what it's all about God. And today is a day where Jesus is here and he says, stop doubting and believe. He says, look at me. Fix your eyes on me. Consider me. And as you fix your eyes on Jesus and the wonder of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the Son of God given for us, doubt your doubts, believe Christ. As you do that, you will find faith to start rising in your heart. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to worship in this moment. If you know that's you, this is your moment to respond as we sing this song. Maybe this morning you've been really feeling really skeptical. Maybe you've been skeptical about the resurrection, skeptical that Jesus is the Son of God, then this is your moment. You can say, Jesus, I'm going to doubt my doubts and I'm going to believe what the Bible says, believe what these other people in the room, this room believe. I'm going to believe what they say. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put my trust in Jesus. And as you sing this song, let these words be your statement of faith. God.